Good morning. If you're new with us, my name is Pat Lassard. I get to be one of the pastors here, and we have a bunch of our staff away on the love boat. Uh, as we're doing a marriage conference on a seven-day cruise, we have a number of our staff as well as, you know, people from our church and leaders within our marriage ministry that are, are uh, a part of that. And uh, so I get to preach today. Before we get into our message and continue on the Life of David sermon series, I want to revisit some things uh, about last Sunday, and I want to uh, share some things on behalf of our lead pastor, Scott Harris, and our elders. Uh, many of you received received a letter that Pastor Scott sent out this last week. Uh, many of you have read it, some hadn't. And so I want to present that to us uh, today and then just share a few things from Pastor Scott before we dive into our message. So this was what was written. Hello, church family. I want to take a quick moment to touch base with you after a memorable set of Sundays with the knowledge of so much suffering, loss and pain and illness within our church family. My heart was to respond to God's call to take our burdens to him through prayer. We saw many people come forward to pray together. It was a scene of faith and beauty watching God's children to go to him in their hour of need. And it was. It was beautiful. During the 9 o'clock service, during the 11 o'clock service, there was much prayer. There was much coming to the Lord, praying for one another, being prayed for. It was beautiful. It was beautiful worship in that time. It was wonderful. If you were at the 11 a.m. service, you saw and heard and experienced an intense reminder of the reality of the spiritual realm and that the uh, enemy is very real, Ephesians 6. I want to tell you that God's goodness won out. Prayers of faith in God's word were spoken and sung over a lady who was afflicted. A short time after we ended the service, she was at peace and proclaiming the name of Jesus as her Lord. I am grateful that God's, God took our simple offering of an unmanufactured space for prayer, plus a faithful church family, and he moved in the hearts of many. Amen. I trust and continue to pray for God's goodness over all of you. Our heart at North Shore is to be a family that authentically and genuinely pursues the presence of God. Moments like last weekend are up to God. Amen. We don't chase after experiences or manufacture environments. We let God do what God wants to do. We will be working on planning a time of biblical teaching in the near future to learn about spiritual warfare. If you have any questions that need to be addressed before then, please don't hesitate to get a hold of him, our elders, our staff. I trust that God is working in the lives of those in need, and I can't wait to hear the praises of his people. Okay? A couple things. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I love it. I think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing. Uh, a couple things from Pastor Scott that I want to kind of lead us in that are important from him and, and for us. Um, number one, you don't need to be afraid. Number two, you don't need to get in the way. Okay? Number one, you don't need to be afraid. Okay? Um, there is no higher name than the name of Jesus, Philippians 2. Amen? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3. Amen? Jesus' victory is our victory, 1 Corinthians 15, amen? amen? And with that, we don't need to be afraid. We walk in his authority. We proclaim his name. There are realities, right? There are realities. And if, as you, you know, as we have like some that are excited, some that are confused, some that are scared, we want to encourage you, read your Bible. We want to encourage you, pray. We want to encourage you to re repeat that cycle, Read, pray, read, pray, read, pray, right? So as you have questions and doubts and struggle, and then, we, then let us wrestle through those things as well. And so there's some realities for us to continue to grow in. And that's the case for every single one of us. Always learning. May we have a posture of always continuing to learn because God's in the business of making us more like Christ, and that is a process. And he wants to do that. Let's, let's not, which leads to the next point. Let's not get in the way, Okay. If you read the book of Acts, you see God move and then Satan react. And then God moves and then Satan reacts. And uh, God does these powerful things and then there's persecution and then there's conflict within the church and then there's these other things that take place. And we need to be mindful of that. 
So we do not want to get in the way of what God's wanting to do. And so we want to encourage you to fight for unity, to fight for love, to fight for grace. Unity is so important to God's heart. How many of you have multiple kids? I have four. You know, as a parent, you want your kids to get along, right? That is important to God's heart. It is no different. That's where we got it, okay? Uh, And this story now is a part of our story. And God's name is on the building, right? Not mine, not yours, God's name. So we want to give way to him. Everybody with me? Let's pray, and then we'll get into our message. God, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to see your power on display. Thank you for allowing us to see truth lived out. Thank you for allowing us to see your gracious, merciful compassion in others' lives, in our lives. Thank you for being our refuge, being our healer. Thank you for being our redeemer. Thank you for the hope that we have in you, the authority that we have in you. Thank you that you want just true and genuine. You don't, you don't need us. You don't want us to manufacture anything. You just want us to follow you. God, may we follow you well. God, we pray for our hearts and those that you're sending here as we seek to be on mission with you. God, that we would be faithful to respond with your heart, your eyes, your mind um, to whatever it is that you'd asked us to step into and that we'd be unified in that. We love you, Lord. May you be glorified as your kids love well. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's dive in. If you were with us last week, Scott had this really great phrase that I want to bring back to your attention about the message. He said, anything that quiets the voice of God in your life is your enemy. And that came from the story of David running and fleeing from his enemies for so long, and then God gave him rest from his enemies, and then he went into this shift in his relationship with the Lord from just like surviving to now he's having conversations, more spiritual conversations, different spiritual conversations about building the temple. And then that's, that played into uh, God saying no to David. No, I'm not going to allow you to build the temple, right? God says no at times. That is a real answer from God, right? We never like being told no, but it's still good for us, right? Then he did have a yes, though. He allowed him to do many of the preparations for years for the temple to be built through his up-and-coming son, okay? So that was last week's message, and we're building on top of that, and uh And even just tying into that kind of call of prayer of healing was what Scott felt led to is the goodness of God and the pain and suffering in this life, we need to bring those together. And that was kind of the connection of that kind of culmination of that moment. Today, we're going to continue in our story, the life of David and pursuit of God through 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Okay. Now, it is a lot of story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the PLPV version. That's the Pat Lassard paraphrase version. Okay. And so hang with me. Be gracious. I'm going to be true to the text, but I'm also going to add some commentary along the way as well. But be like a Berean. Check it out for yourself. Read the word for yourself. Make sure that it lines up for yourself. So as I add some interpretation, understand that, be gracious in that. And then there's a corresponding psalm, Psalm 51, that we're going to get into as well. Okay? So this message is titled, God Desires Truth in Your Innermost Being. And that is based out of psalm, and it's tied to this story. God desires truth in your innermost being. The story starts out as this. As kings go into battle in the springtime, they go to defend their territories. They go to take new territory. Uh, 
King David's army was out there and his commander Joab was out there and his military uh, crew and force were out there battling. And David was not. He was chilling in the temple. That's not what kings do at that time. And then it says, it happened that one afternoon. He was in his chilling moment. He got up from the couch and he's walking on the roof. He's walking on the the balcony and he sees from afar a smoking hot lady. Okay. She had his attention. He, and this is where it shifts. Okay. He asks the servant, who's that? They reply, that's Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, wife of Uriah. He says, bring her to me. He takes her. That's what it says. He took her, brought her to his palace, brought her to his palace, had sex with her. She went home. She becomes pregnant. She sends a message back to King David She didn't text him, I'm pregnant. She had to send a message to someone to get up to the king, I'm pregnant. And then he starts scheming. He asked for Joab, his commander of his army, to send Uriah, her husband, to him. And then he starts making small talk. So, how's it going? How's the battle? How's Joab? gives him an update. David says, you should really go to your house. You should go wash your feet. You should really go to your house. How about you go to your house? You think that's a good idea? Uriah leaves. David sends a present with him. And I'm thinking, just bear with me, like a dozen roses, bottle of champagne, right? Just smooth things up, right? He doesn't go to his house. He goes and he sleeps outside of the king's palace. David finds out he doesn't go to his house. He brings him back into the palace and says, hey, I noticed you didn't go to your house. Why didn't you go to your house? He says, I I wouldn't do that. The ark of the Lord is out in battle before our enemies. My commander is out in the open field. My fellow soldiers are out in the open field. I would not do that. What would I do? Go eat with my wife, drink with my wife, and lay with my wife? Before you, I would not. Before your soul, I would not do that. Just this upstanding integrity. So David says, okay, stay here, and then tomorrow I'll send you back into battle. And he eats and drinks, and then he gets him drunk. And he's hoping he's inebriated, he's going to go, right? Loose ambitions, he's going to go to be with his wife, but he doesn't. He does the same thing. He goes out in the palace, in the front, sleeps there. This is next what David does. In the morning, David writes a letter to his commander about Uriah. And he schemes and he crafts that he is going to, I want you to position him in such a way and then have our armies pull back so that he gets killed in battle. He seals the letter, hands it to Uriah, and has Uriah carry back this death sentence. And then it plays out. Word comes back to King David that multiple people died in this battle that you called us to. Uriah's one of them. David's words literally to get back to Joab were this. Do not let this matter displease you. It's the nature of war. Story goes on. The, war, the word comes back to the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, that her husband's dead, killed in battle. She's broken, right? She weeps, she laments. And then after that time of lamenting, David takes her to be his wife back in his palace. And it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's chapter 11. Chapter 12. Then the Lord sends, da- uh, sends Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to David. 
telling them a story. There's two men. One is a rich man, one is a poor man. The rich man has a ton of sheep. He has a ton of sheep. The poor man has one. And this little lamb is precious to him. He would feed her from his own plate, drink from his own cup. She would lay in his arms. She was raised up with his own kids. She was considered a daughter, it says, to him. The rich man had a guest come to his house one time, and instead of using one of his many sheep, he took the one poor man's lamb and made that the meal. David hears this story from the prophet Nathan, and he is livid. He says, that should not be. This man deserves to die. He needs to pay back fourfold what he had done because he did not have pity on that poor man. And then the famous line from Nathan, you are that man. He goes on, he says, the Lord God has blessed you. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hands of your enemies. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If that was enough, I would have given you more. And he goes on, he says, because you've done these things, the sword is not going to depart from your home. Like there's going to be violence and devastation and destruction within your own family because of this. Second, the secret sin that you did privately, it's going to become public and the sexual sin is going to become a public shaming of you through your own family, which is devastating within an honor-based culture and society as a king. All of these are horrible. That stands in a different light. And then your child is going to die. He says this. He says, I, David's response, I have sinned. Nathan says, the Lord also has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin, but the child's going to die. The child gets sick. The Lord afflicts the child with sickness. David weeps and mourns and fasts and prays and pleads for mercy from God. And he notices his servants after days. He notices his servants mumbling among themselves. They're worried about telling him the child has died. He asked, did the child die? Did he die? They said yes. They thought he was going to harm himself if he knew that. That's how broken he was. But he gets up and he anoints himself. He changes his clothes. He washes. And then he goes to the house of the Lord and he worships. He comes back and he eats a meal. And his servants ask him, I, I'm confused. This is confusing. Why, why now? It's like you're kind of moving on. And he says this. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? I can't bring him back. I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. That right there, side note, is a beautiful proclamation of the hope in Jesus by the resurrection in life that is truly life in Jesus' words of heaven. They will be reunited again. Let that be encouraging for any of us who have lost a little one. David's words, I will go to him. There will be restoration of relationship in eternity with God. It goes on and it finishes with this, that David comforted his wife. And then Bathsheba, then she became pregnant with their son Solomon. That, my friends, is the story today that we're talking about. And then we have this psalm, Psalm 51, and we're going to have Jeff Reed come up and share Psalm 51. He has a, a special gift in being able to retain Big, long passages. And so he's been a long time a member of North Shore. So we're going to have him share Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O oh God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Thank you, brother. That's amazing. I want to introduce you to this gem. That is this story. There are so many facets to it. There are so many. It is richly deep, far beyond anything that I can do in this time. Okay? So we are going to pick a few facets of this major, deep, huge, big story, okay? So we're going to dive in. This is titled, God Desires Truth in Your Innermost Being. I want to keep coming back to that. I want you to be thinking about that, praying about that. It's from verse 6 of Psalm 51. God desires truth in your innermost being. What is that? What truths is he wanting to allow deeply within the recesses of your heart, soul, and mind? Okay? Uh, this comes from the necessity of truth God sees in us. And this theme rises to the surface because that's the opposite of what we see in this story. Okay? This story captures David's worst moments. David's worst moments. Which happens to be uh, man's worst moments on display. The worst of humanity on display here. Sin is ugly, painful, and deceptive. As Nathan said in verse 19 of chapter 12, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? By this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Another translation says that last part, that verse 14 part, by saying, by this deed, you have given opportunity to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. We've seen that, okay, that we see in his story such hypocrisy 
right? That's not what the king is called to do. That's not what a representative of God is called to do. That's not what a spiritual leader is called to do. That's not what a leader of a nation is called to do. He's doing the opposite. He is acting like a complete hypocrite from what he believed and what he knew to be true. And so others on the outside are going, uh, you're kidding me. If that's your God, I want nothing to do with that. That's a bunch of fake, phony, that doesn't change anything, right? And they blaspheme God because of his actions. We see that today, right? We see that of leaders that are supposed to walk in this integrity because of the position, the responsibility, the authority that they have, the influence that they have, especially spiritual leaders, right? And we see those stories over and over, and we're not done. We're not done hearing those stories, sadly, and it reminds us of several things. But it is fallible man, right? The worst, worst of humanity on display in those moments. I want to introduce you to this picture of the Ten Commandments. This might be new for some of you. This is a reminder for many of you. Here's the Ten Commandments. This is the big ten. Okay? Notice the right side. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, lying. You shall not covet, that is wanting what someone else has, lusting, desiring for what someone else has. David blew five of the ten big ten. Five of the ten he blew in this, in, in this one instance. How, why would you have despised the word of the Lord? You, what you have done, you've scorned the Lord by your actions. It's horrible. This is David's worst moments, the worst of humanity on display by his life. I want you to notice something in this story. It's in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 7. Notice the blessings of God are not enough to keep him from sinning if he wanted to sin. The blessings of God in our lives are not enough to keep us from sin if we want sin. You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of your enemy. I gave you these things and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. He had it all. And it wasn't enough to keep him from sinning because that's what he wanted. The worst of humanity on display. That's true for us. You may have a lot of blessings in your life, but if you want sin more, if you want to sin more, that's not enough to keep you. There's something more, something different that's needed within you. And perhaps it has to do with that 51 verse 6. God, you desire truth in your innermost being. Blessings aren't enough to keep us from sin if we want to sin. That's a facet of this. This reminds me of a, a story, a really sad story. Um, as I think about it, it just makes me ache inside. There's a really good friend of mine that God allowed me the opportunity to disciple, to help him grow in Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity for a number of years. Uh, I met him when he got out of prison. I was able to, God used me to get him a bicycle so that he could get to work as he's finding his feet. And he got, um, he got a job and he met a girl there that God was doing some redeeming work in her too. Real broken story and God's redemptive story in her. It's amazing. And eventually they hooked up and they were getting married. God used me to marry them as a couple. She had a girl from a previous relationship. She became pregnant. They had kids. There's another opportunity. God used me to connect him with another man for an amazing job at an amazing company. And he excelled at what he did, everything he did. I really was like, God bless everything that he did. And he like took amazing responsibilities. He was trusted by the top owners of the leader. And he just like, woo, it was amazing. And he allowed sin in his life. And he allowed a foothold of Satan in his life. 
and he continued to go back to old broken ways that God had freed him from previously, that he had repented from previously, and he went back and back and back. And I met with them as a couple and working through some of these relapses and things numerous times, and he just tanked, and he threw it all away. He threw it all away. I was waiting for a phone call that he was dead. That's what I was waiting for over the last um, year. But Lord spared him. Blessings aren't enough. There's something more, something needed, something necessary to keep us from sin. If you want to sin, you're going to sin. That's what you want more. Notice also from this, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. That's a crucial part, right? You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. You're not in control of that, okay? We see some significant consequences in this story for him. The sword is not going to depart from your home. There's going to be devastation within your own family. There's going to be public shame. What you did in secret, I'm going to make public. That's the natural consequences. God ordered and established the universe in such a way that we reap what we sow. And this is playing out in this way. And then third, the child is going to die. I want to introduce you to this picture of these ripples. I've heard it said this way. You can throw a water into stone, or you can throw a stone into water. That'd be really hard to throw water. You can throw a stone into water. You can be sad about that and draw the stone back out of the water. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But you cannot stop the ripples of the water. You can choose your sin. You don't get to choose your consequences. You're not in control of that. And then lastly, notice the sameful, sinful nature within David is within you. You are that man. As he said, you are that man, so are you and you and me. You are that man. The Bible makes it really clear, just a couple verses in this way. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Little test here, okay? Uh, Active participation within church right now. How many of you have a heart? All right. You passed the test. That's you. We want to minimize our sin. We want to lessen our sin. We do not want to see our sin as sin. We don't want to call our sin as sin. We're really good at seeing it in other people, right? We maximize their sin. We minimize our sin. We justify our sin. We normalize our sin. We do all sorts of tricks of the trade to do that. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible goes on and continues to share that same theme in this way. Romans 3 says, none is righteous. No, not one. (laughs) None, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You might um, have heard this prayer before or introduce it to some of you. It's about this theme. Dear God, so far today I have done all right. I haven't gossiped haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And then from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. I love that. There's a lot of truth to that. That's really good. The same sinful nature within David is, in, is with you. These are David's worst moments on display, the worst of humanity on display. What are your worst moments? What have your worst moments been that highlight the reality of God's absolute truth speaking into your life? God desires truth in the innermost being. God, have your way. What is it that I minimize? What is it that I soft sell? What is it that I'm trying to avoid? God's worst moments led to, sorry, David's worst moments led to God's best moments. 
the worst of humanity on display led to the best of humanity on display. As David says to Nathan, when, he, when Nathan says, David, you're that man, here's what's happening. David said, I have sinned. Straight up. 100%. Sinned. I missed the mark. Nathan says this, the Lord has also put away your sin. Think about that. The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being. As he says, I have sinned, he allowed truth to penetrate the innermost being of him. And he did the first step in repentance. He confessed. I've sinned. God proclaimed grace and mercy over him in that. I'm not going to hold your sin against you. God prophesies of the new covenant to come, this new relationship between God and man through Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet 31 says this, For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Let that sink in. The mercy of God, the grace of God. He remembers your sin no more. That does not have to make sense to you. But he does ask you to trust him in faith. David's worst moments led to God's best moments because we see in this family line of David, we have to jump to Matthew 1. Matthew 1 verse 1 and then verse 6. It leads to this. God's best moments of the Messiah coming through the line of David. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. Christ means anointed one. Christ means Messiah. He is the Savior, right? The son of David, the one to come. The son of Abraham. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This royally broken family line is the line in which God chose. The Messiah is to come through the family line of David. That's an amazing thing. God's, David's worst moments led to God's best moments because he used David's broken, broken story and human experience to bring about the Messiah through his own family line. He continues with best moments by the king, the king coming, because this is through David being the king, this is Jesus' legal claim to the throne. David's worst moments led to God's best moments by the Messiah being through his family line and the king of kings through his family line in this story right here. God's best moments. And then lastly, God's best moments, the savior of the world. This is the one to come. And he's looking for real, authentic people. He's not looking for pretension. He's not looking for fake, plastic people who keep themselves looking all dolled up and pretty and together. He's looking for broken, humble, contrite before him. And so we look at Jesus' life and what he did, this, this Messiah, this King, this Savior of the world. He came and he lived. He came. God came. God came. He came and became one of us and he lived among us like us. He came and he sought. He lived what it looks like to be truly human. He came and he taught. He came and he loved. He came and he forgave. He came and he empowered and he sent out. He came and he died. He didn't have to. And he didn't stay dead. He came and did all of that. The king to come through this family line. Jesus taught. We looked at Jesus for God's best moments. And this is what he taught. Luke 5. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Which one are you? God, you desire truth in my innermost being. Repentance means turning from, turning to. It means change of mind, literally. And so I've been doing this thing. It's broken. It's corrupt. It's not working. It's hurting myself. It's hurting others. It's not what God has called humanity to be. 
right? It's not reflecting God. It's a hypocrisy of God and me being an image bearer of God made in his image and his likeness. And so I repent. I change my mind to follow God and his ways, depend on his spirit, trust his truth over my truths or the world's truths. I have not come to call the righteous, those that say they're put together, but the sinner who admits their brokenness to repentance. I love this accusation against Jesus in Luke 7. Jesus accused of being the friend of sinners. Think about that. Friend of me. Matthew 5, Jesus taught this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many of you like being poor? Never comfortable, never fun. Poor in spirit, broken, right? Poor in spirit, bankrupt. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who it belongs to. And then lastly, Jesus tells this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he prefaces it this way. He says, he told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men go into a temple. It's like two guys go into a bar, okay? But two men go into a temple to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stands up by himself praying, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector, right? God, thank you that I did not break five of the Ten Commandments because that would be really bad, you know. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I volunteer at such and such. I'm in a small group. I attend church, right. This is great. God, thank you for that. But the tax collector, he stood back there and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he says, I tell you, the one who walked away justified is the second man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. David's worst moments led to God's best moments. And I could say that's the same thing in my life as well. My worst moments have led to God's best moments in my life as I was stuck in chemical addiction, far from God, not wanting anything to do with God, he graciously pursued me and showed me he was real and good and compassionate. As I struggled trusting others and wanted nothing to do with others, God showed me there were safe and trustworthy people that I could actually let in and let out things that were really going on inside of here, inside of here. And as I didn't believe I would ever serve within a church, no way, that wasn't a place for me at all, knowing my past, God used a guy, a man, to say, hey, you look like someone who would be willing to serve communion. Blew my mind. Didn't know that was possible. As my two-week-old son was fighting for his life, continuously not breathing in ICU from a respiratory virus, God brought the church family around me to experience the church, the body of Christ as a family in a way that I had never known existed. As I was broken from a failed marriage, um, God showed me that he knows exactly what that's like and he knows all about adultery and unfaithfulness. As I struggled for two years as a full-time single dad, God graciously brought me this person called Lisa Green to become Lisa Lassard. And we actually celebrate our anniversary today. And God... Love you, honey. And God brought amazing restoration within my life and the life of my boys. As I found myself tripping over and over and over and over again with lust, God brought me a couple of men and he taught me truths that were essential for me being continuously setting free and set free and redeemed. Romans 8, 1 through 2, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
in addition to Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision, that's your part, make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. As I found myself continually stuck in coveting and discontentment, financially, situationally, and still working through that, God graciously reminds me that godliness with contentment is of great gain. And there's so much more to this life than this life. And to keep my eyes fixed on him and that he is a provider and a sustainer. What about you? What's, what are those moments for you? Your worst moments. Leading to God's best moments. As we wind this down, we're going to look at our next steps and we're going to also lead you through communion. The ushers will, in a moment, they'll get ready and they'll distribute the elements of communion. And we'll finish with, with communion today. But I want to lead you through these next steps. And we're going to use these next steps as a way, as uh, 1 Corinthians says, that we don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner. And there's a part of repentance in that. Is a part of conditioning our heart that it be worship, not just religious motion and practice. And so there'd be conversation with the Lord about, okay, Lord, you desire truth in my innermost being. What is it you're saying? Where is it you're wanting truth in the very depths of my being and all the fibers of who I am, what I've been doing, what I've been thinking? God, what are you saying? What are you wanting me to release? What are you wanting me to trust you in? What are you wanting me to believe as you have spoken truth for me to hold on to? And so that's the first question is based off of that. God, you delight in truth in my innermost being. What truth is God desiring would find its way into the very depths of your heart and soul and mind? Think about that. This story also contrasts this godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow element. 2 Corinthians 11 captures this. The story of the King Saul versus uh, being worldly sorrow and King David being godly sorrow. We have this contrast here. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Judas, worldly sorrow. Peter, godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow looks like this. I am sad I got caught. I'm sad I got caught. I'm sad there's consequences. I'm going to be really calculated with what I tell you. I'm going to be really calculated with what I give up. I'm going to be in control. Godly sorrow says, God, <laughs> whatever it takes to be set free from this, God, what are you saying? God, let it, let, let whatever needs to happen for me to be set free and to me to be right with you, God, you do. You do that and help me do my part because obviously I don't have it together. Where are you at with that? Where are you at with that comparison? Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And then lastly, confession. We see this in the story. Confession is truth in community. Truth in community. We have a couple really great verses regarding this. First John 1 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's koinonia, there's communion, there's connection with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's pretty sweet. We want that. James 5 says this, Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Super crucial. If I bring you back to the message, we're all sinners. You are that man. The same thing that's in him is in you. Me too. 
What are you needing to confess to a safe, trustworthy person rooted in Christ that can with spiritual eyes see you where you're at in that brokenness, right, and meet you there so you can get that out of your life, out of your heart, out of your past so that you could be healed because as long as it stays in the dark, it continues to fester and grow and Satan uses it for his work and it continues to have power over you, meaning loss of control for you and the spirit. But when you get that out of the darkness into the light, we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship one another. There's no pretense. We don't have to pretend anymore. And the blood of Jesus covers us from all those things. And then we pray for one another. God, your mercy over them. Thank you for the work you've done on the cross, right? And there is healing. I've been set free. I am free to tell you all sorts of stuff because Jesus has set me free. I don't need to walk around in shame anymore. What's God doing in your life? What's God speaking to you? You desire truth in my innermost being. Let's take a moment to pray. This piece of bread represents Jesus' life. He came. He lived. He gave us an example. Let's take and eat and remember his life. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the King. Jesus, the Savior. In this cup, this cup of juice, it represents Jesus' blood shed for the forgiveness of all sin. Where he would, it's so powerful, he would say, I remember your sins no more. It's all good. You're just my kid now. Let's take and remember and celebrate the power of Jesus' blood. Amen. And then now, like David, let's follow his example. In the house of the Lord, let's go and worship him. Let's stand up. Let's sing. Let's praise our King.